0: Love that kid, excited about church. Yeah. Well, a lot of new faces today, a lot of visitors. Let me catch you up on what we're doing. We're going through a series called The Psalms Unplugged. No videos, no scripture on the screen, just you and I and God's Word. It's like the 1800s, except I got a Garth Brooks mic on. Uh, So we got speakers. That's good. Uh, Over the past couple of weeks, we've gone over Psalms 6, 7, 8, and 9, and we've learned several things about how great our God is. We hear that our God hears. We've learned that. That He listens to our longings. You and I should cry out to Him because He listens. And that our God judges. He is the greatest magistrate over the ultimate Supreme Court, and He always rules rightly. And that our God creates... That he, is, he has designed every human with dignity. And he's given every single person, every person in this room, every person in this world, a purpose. And as Sarah prayed, and as we sang, he reigns. He is victorious. I love that old Baptist hymn, Victory in Jesus. I wanted to stomp on my feet. I almost grabbed my wife and did the two-step, but I thought, we'll wait till next week. Um... Don't do it next week because then I'll have to do that. Um, I love that song. He's victorious. He, Jesus Christ, sits at the right hand of God until God says, Go, establish your kingdom that's been inaugurated, establish it on earth. He reigns. He is sovereign over the past, over the present, over the future. And that alone is enough for us to consider these four psalms for the next four months. But today you and I are going to see Psalm 10. We're going to look at God's Word and we're going to see and we're going to learn that our God sees. He has His eye on everything. Last week I told you I was basically preaching to myself. And if you learn something from it, praise be to God. But my call to myself and to you is to make a wholehearted commitment to God's past work, His present work, based on His future promises. Because in our culture, being content and complacent, there is a fine line. And so I said, pray looking back, pray looking around, and pray looking forward. That was mainly for me. Today, I'm, I'm teaching something uh, that, quite honestly, I have not experienced to the depths that maybe some of you have. And so, I'm preaching another man's sermon. How about that? I'm just telling you up front. Uh, Much of what you get from this sermon today, I have not experienced to the degree that David talks about it, and so I chose to have two men guide me through this psalm, uh, Dr. David Pallison and Dr. Ed Welch. Out on the front table, I encourage you to take these two articles. I want to introduce you to them. I'm not stealing their material, but if there's anything good in my sermon, it's probably theirs. Uh, The first is the myth of God's silence. I'm going to read it in its entirety. Here in a few minutes. And the second is by Dr. David Pallison. This is a dear man that both my wife and I love. Uh, we have all his books, and if you would read his books, um, his, his, his books are where the greatness of theology hits the ground in real life. And so what helped me prepare for today is this article, Predator, Prey, and Protector, Helping, Vi- Hel- Helping Victims, Think and act from Psalm 10. And uh, Psalm 10, as David Pallison says, was uttered and written for those who have been victimized. And I am, like I said earlier, I have not experienced this, maybe to some of the degree that some of you have. Some I know, some I probably don't know. My heart goes out to you. Um, Because it starts as bullying on the playground. And it can end up being rape. It can end up being those things that uh, are hard to talk about from the pulpit. And so my heart goes out to you. And if you're here today and you need some help, uh, hopefully I have endeared you enough and you trust me enough, you can come talk to me. You can talk to any of our elders. Uh, But this psalm is here to help us. Let me pray. Father. I don't know everybody in here in the depths of the past of each and every person, but you do. And that is enough. And Father, you are a great Father, and as we will learn today, you are a great protector. No eye has seen, no ear has heard a God like you who works for those who wait on him. And so we're waiting on you, we're calling upon you to speak mightily, through your word, because you are not silent. I pray that if there's anyone in here today who resonates with this song, might they feel the power of your Holy Spirit through the spoken word. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If I were showing you a video today, it would be 12 minutes long, and it would be about Zoe. Zoe saw this this week, Zoe uh, was in a foster care system. And I'd show it to you and I'd wa- let you watch it in length because it makes you feel what she feels. And she it begins with her just looking off in the distance and more often than not, that's what happens. And then there's flashbacks to when she heard her daddy beating her mommy. And so she went in there to see what was up. And then she, too, was the victim of abuse she was taken through the foster system one family didn't really care but then she's brought into this one family that took the time to know her love her gave her space so she could learn that she would trust a new parent and eventually be reunited with a piece of her family psalm ten is for zoe It's also for the family in Sri Lanka that must live amid the constant uncertainty about where the next terrorist bombing might occur. Psalm 10 is for the young man who was subjected to systematic torture, mind control, threats, and sexual violence as a child in boarding school. It is for the pastor who faces malcontents in the church who are out to get him. Praise to God, there's none in here. It is for the college student whose professor has an axe to grind against God. It is for the family that lives in a high crime neighborhood. It is for the recent widow on whom a home repair scam preys. It is for anyone under assault from external temptations. Zoe may have asked, where is God when I need him most? She's always looking, done on purpose in the video, always looking, always wondering. Psalm 10 breaks down nicely. It helps you and I think through and how to counsel that if I can sit with somebody now and I don't have to go to some specialized counselor. God has equipped his church to take his word and sit with those who have been through this situation and walk them through. Four times I've sat with families who have lost children in four times because I've never lost any children, so it would be stupid and I can use that word from the pulpit. It would be stupid of me, ignorant, to say, Oh, I know how you feel. No, but in a few weeks, we'll look at Psalm 13. Every single one of them got the same. It's because God tells us in Second Corinthians chapter one and verse three, He has comforted us with all the comfort that we may help me, we may comfort anyone in any affliction so this psalm begins with the important question in verse 1. It goes to the accurate description of the wicked. No other psalm in the uh, Psalter gives you as much detail about those who want to hurt others. And then there's a desperate petition and finally this quiet affirmation. David Pallison says in his article here, he, there are four voices in this psalm. There is the writer. There is this personal, individual suffering from 3,000 years ago. There is also, it's in the Psalter. It's in the Psalter of Israel. It's written to God's people who suffered together. And then he makes a connection that this is fulfilled in Jesus. He says the third voice registers Jesus' experience. Do you know that? If you're a victim of There is one who has gone before you. He himself cried out these requests to God, offered these analyses of evil, and asserted these affirmations of faith that fill Psalm 10. These sentiments express a facet of the experience of the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. Your Redeemer was among the afflicted, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Your individual experience is a subset of another's experience. If you are in Christ, hear and see the one who invites you to trust, the one who invites you to gratitude, love, and hope. He walked this road. Imagine these words reveal the heart of your rescuer. You can love the Jesus who felt, thought, and said these things. Psalms are not meditative techniques for achieving mental equilibrium. Psalm 10 is not spiritual Prozac. It expresses the inner life in words of a person whom Zoe, whom yourself, can grow and love. And finally, the fourth verse is you, the reader, you, the listener, that you will see what happened then, is true for all time, perfected in Jesus Christ, and is very much relevant to For today, very much relevant for today. This is not some archaic book that should sit on the shelf and collect dust as something that looks pretty. It should be well worn. It should have duct tape on it that says, I love bacon. Only to be coupled with a donut with maple and bacon. Where am I going? That was just a side note. Just forget I said that. Let me get back to the sermon. God's Word is effective today. Every single word, every single phrase, every single paragraph, every single chapter, every single book. There's not one book in here that we go, you know what, we're just not going to study that at Eagle Bible Church. It's kind of, you know, Leviticus. We don't sacrifice any animals. Oh, but what a beautiful picture of what happened for us. And so we're going to look at Psalm 10. We're going to start with verse 1. We're going to go through all 18 verses. And I hope it is my prayer that you walk away from here encouraged. It is my prayer that you, uh, my goal is, is if you're here today, this will give you a thought process on how to deal with such a tragic, such a deep-seated um, evil in the world. Verse 1, the important question. Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? David is crying out to a God that seems distant and seems silent. But this is a cry of a man of faith. This isn't a question of a man trying to blame God. You will see. You've got to read the whole psalm to see that. This is a question of a man who wants God to do something, and he will do it. But David begins with that important question. And though it's important, he doesn't fall prey to the myth of God's silence. When you and I try to engage someone who is silent, you do your best in one-sided conversation. Then, with no response forthcoming, you move on to someone who will engage. Such is the experience of many who feel alone in their sufferings. They try to talk to God. They really try. But how long can they wait for nothing? So they adjust their expectations and figure out how to get by on their own. God exists, they believe, but he doesn't involve himself in day-to-day human affairs. This is the standard fare for many Christians who are suffering. For some, they turn away from God. Their turn away from God is short-lived. For others, it becomes a way of life. And it makes perfect sense. Why would someone who claims to love you be mummed? When you need him most. And then Dr. Welch says one thing, except for one thing He isn't silent. God does speak. There is no divine conspiracy of silence. He speaks through Moses and the prophets. Jesus heard well known public domain scripture and it sustained him. These are the words the Father gave him, given through Moses and the prophets. Key sentence The Father spoke. To Jesus through Scripture, and this is how He speaks to us. Might we protest, but we're looking for something more direct. If we do, Dr. Welch says, Abraham himself responds, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. In other words, while we accuse God of silence, we are only fooling ourselves. If the Father appeared and spoke to us face to face, another key sentence, his words would have no more weight in our hearts than the ones he's already spoken. Amen? Amen? If we find his words in scriptures to fall short, we would also find his personal visitation unsatisfactory. Amen? Do you... See why I make such a big deal out of this. When you read this, God speaks. He spoke through Jesus. He said in Hebrews 1, "In the last days, God has spoke. In the former days He spoke through His prophets, but in these last days, He has spoken in His Son." And so you get this Bible where we hear plenty. We hear that Satan tempts us when life is especially hard. We hear mercy and compassion. We hear the songs and stories of like-minded people who heard clearly even things initially seem, even when things initially seem quiet. We hear promises galore that are finalized in the Son. We hear that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. We will participate in that resurrection and new life. We hear that royal children are best seen as they go through child trials to see if their allegiances stand the test. James 1 says, consider it all joy. When, not if, when you encounter trials of various kinds. Knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance and let endurance have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And so we get reoriented. Rather than muddle through as orphans, we search Scripture. We study Moses and the prophets. We study the life of Jesus. We listen for what the Father gave Him. And when the task feels overwhelming, we ask others who have heard the wisdom of God during their sufferings. What did they hear? You often see these families gather and they counsel. In the abundance of counselors, there's victory. And here's the best question to ask. What scripture was most precious to you during this situation? Why is that the best question to ask? That's my opinion. That's not in the article. I just think it's a great question. What scripture was most precious to you during this time? That, that I, had a, I have a friend who just lost his father. I've lost my father. What scripture was most precious to me because it, it, it brings together two things. God's word and my understanding of God's word in that situation. That's a good little article, isn't it? The myth of God's silence. That's all just chapter, or verse 1. David is perplexed. So let's not miss the point. And you and I will be and could be about what's going on. But he also pleads and he also goes to God and he accurately sees the situation. In verses 2 through 11, you get this accurate description of Evil. In arrogance, the wicked hotly pursue the poor. The ESV says, let them be caught in the schemes that they have devised. The NIV says, the wicked hotly pursue the poor who are caught in the schemes he devises. Either one works. The Hebrews awkward in that. But either one works. We want the wicked caught and we want the captured freed. The wicked bully the weak. It starts on the playground. It doesn't stop there. Why do they do this? Verse 3, for the wicked boasts the desires of his soul. You and I only and always and ever do what we want out of the overflow of our heart. Always. Always. I had a guy once, I was a pastor over a young marriage ministry. He goes, oh, you can't say that. I mean, he loves his wife even though he yells at her. No, not at that moment. At that moment, he did not love her. And if those moments, and I'm not getting technical here, but for the sake of illustration, equal 51%, he doesn't love her. He hates her. The Bible gives you no, only two options, love and hate. It's not, well, I don't love her, but I kind of like her. For the wicked boasts of the desires of his soul, and the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. David Paulson says it best. He says, this is anti-repentance. In the pride of his face, verse 4, the wicked does not seek him, and all his thoughts. Here's where it begins. Why do we emphasize so much memorizing Scripture, getting our thought life right? Because here's where it begins. He thinks literally, there is no God. You see the exact same phrase in Psalm 14 and Psalm 53. That's why we're skipping 14, by the way. We're doing 10, 11, 12, 13. Years ago, I did 14 on April Fool's Day. It just happened to be April Fool's on a Sunday. And I thought, what, a, what better sermon than Psalm 14? The fool says in his heart, there is no God. So we want you have to go online to hear that one. The wicked bully and they boast and they blaspheme. And look at verse 5. This is what you and I, this is why David's crying out to God with that important question. This is why we do it too. He, the wicked, or his ways prosper at all times. Your judgments are on high out of his sight. As for his foes, he puffs at them. God, if I watch them, they're they're getting away with it. When we see this happen, we may seem to think they get away with their shenanigans. In fact, the wicked, verse 6, says in his heart, Notice it may not even be verbalized. It's in his heart. I shall not be moved throughout all generations. I shall not meet adversity. And so not only do we see them prospering, we're wondering how is this? They think that themselves. They may not articulate it verbally, but they say in their hearts, ah, there is no God. I will not be moved. But guess what? God knows their hearts. Jesus knows the hearts of men. If you wanted to turn with me to Mark chapter 2, I just want to share with you three verses that shows you our Savior knows the hearts of men and women and children. He even knows donkeys. I mean, read Numbers. He knows what the donkey was thinking. You have to go do your homework on that one. Mark 2, verse 6. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts. They're sitting around. They're watching Jesus heal this guy. They're not saying a word, and they're questioning in those hearts. Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately, Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that that they thus questioned within themselves, that is, in their hearts, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Jesus, in His humanity, gives a glimpse of His sovereignty. He has never, ever, ever capture this if you've been um, victimized. God is never surprised by the wicked. And So the wicked think, thinks this way, verse 6, but he also speaks this way. He uses his mind and he uses his mouth. His mouth is filled with cursing and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue are mischief and iniquity. The overflow of the heart, the mouth will speak. That's why one of the greatest gauges of a human soul is just to listen to their speech. Listen to what somebody talks about. We talk about what we love. And the wicked not only thinks and speaks, the wicked acts. Look at verse 8. It's like he's building up. In verse 9, he sits in ambush in the villages, in the hiding places. He murders the innocent. His eyes stealthily watch for the helpless. The murderous action, if you break that down, is literally surrounded by patience and observation. The wicked wait the wicked watch, and then the wicked act in accordance with their desires. Verse 90 lurks in ambush like a lion in its thicket. I've only seen a lion in the zoo. I've never been on an African safari. I've seen them on videos where they lurk around. The other day, in, the Lord gave me in pre- preparation for this psalm, we were out playing baseball in the park, and there was a cat. And it got down, and it was lurking. And I'm like, there's my illustration. It's a cat, but it's the same thing. This is what the wicked do. They're like a lion in its thicket. He lurks that he may seize the poor. He seizes the poor when he draws them into his net. It's a game, it's a scheme. The wicked show by their words and they show by their actions that they are of their father, the devil, who seeks someone to devour. And so verse 10, the helpless are crushed. They sink down and they fall by his might. You go back to Zoe, she didn't know what to do. Just a little girl. She was crushed under the weight of her father, crushed under the weight of the system, awaiting someone to give her hope. And so does David. The wicked also says in his heart, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. And he's believed a lie. Proverbs 15.3, the eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch of the evil and the good. And so what should you and I do when we find ourselves in this situation? What should we do if we find ourselves counseling someone in this situation? We do what we can do, and the only thing we can do, all of us together together, Some have to walk through it differently, but all of us can pray to the one person in the entire universe who can do something about it. And that's what you get in 12 through 15. This desperate petition. Arise, O Lord. Lift up your hand. Forget not the afflicted. Why does the wicked renounce God and say say in his heart, You will not call to account. Now, if you and I are watching these words, if we go back to verse... For watch the movement of the wicked. God is at work. There is no God. Thus he says in verse six, I shall not be moved. But in verse eleven, God is forgotten. Oh, all of a sudden there is a God. Oh, he, He's hidden his face. He'll never see it. And now in thirteen you will not take it into account. God has hidden an eternity in their hearts that they might seek him. The wicked, you can even see in this psalm, progress from a there is not a God to he will not give an account. But David tells him something, but God, you do see. That is why we've called this psalm, Our God Sees. He does see. He lives out, Proverbs fifteen three, which David taught to Solomon and Solomon taught to his sons. To you, the helpless commits himself. You do see, and it says, for you know mischief and vexation, that you may take it into your hands. Lift up your hands. Take it into your hands. To you, the helpless commits himself. You have been the helper of the fatherless. I want to give you two things based upon this prayer that you should take with you. The God who sees gives us eyes of faith. Ephesians 1:18 may their eyes be enlightened to see three things. I'm just going to turn there instead of trying to do it from memory so I don't butcher it. Why butcher it when it's right there in front of me? Have in the eyes of your heart enlightened line that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. Has called you it's past what are the riches of the inglorious inheritance of the saints? That is future. And most important, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his great might? Have the eyes of your higher open to see hope. You've been called to something bigger than yourself. Inheritance. There's something coming that will blow your mind that no 401K, no riches on earth, will ever even compare. And right now, the immeasurable. You can't even measure it. Like I can go to a bench right now and you can measure how strong I am. I could take you there and measure how strong you are. Get pinned under the bar. (laughs) Just warm it up. It's okay. Immeasurable. You can't even measure it. And so it's to that God that we commit ourselves. It's to that God who will help the fatherless and so we see that our god sees but he gives us eyes of faith and he helps us to make and persevere make it to the end and persevere just like moses did it says in hebrews eleven twenty seven, 27 and he endured as seeing the one who is invisible And so drawing close to God through his word, because he is not silent, David commits himself to the one who can help him. And notice what it says there. The helpless commits himself. Even in the face of doubt, we must commit. Too many times, victims want answers before they commit. And this is understandable. But I encourage you to commit in faith and go to the good father. You say, but show me in the Bible, show me where that has ever worked. I will. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Spoken by the perfect man. And immediately following that, he says, into your hands. Remember, David's talking about lift up your hand. You may take it into your hands. Into your hands, I commit my spirit. So, I would ask you to do what Jesus did. Was that just smoke and mirrors? Is he just quoting Psalm 22? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Oh, no, no, no. That is a cry of a man in pain. And he says, Into your hands I commit my spirit. He is the perfect example of how to suffer. Now we must deal with the last part of this prayer. Break the arm of the wicked and the evildoer. Call his wickedness to account till you have till you find none. What? Is this sounds like dashing their babies upon the rocks? This sounds like some Old Testament barbaric thought. What's going on here? This is David in his emotion calling God to do to the wicked what they deserve. Due to the wicked, to break their strength, the imagery behind that is if you don't have your arm, you cannot be strong. How is that in the Bible? Should we even go there? Let me answer it with Dr. John Stott. As for the imprecatory Psalms, in them the psalmist speaks not with any personal animosity, but as a representative of God's chosen people. He regards the wicked as enemies of God, counts them his own enemies only because he has completely identified himself with the cause of God, hates them because he loves God and is so confident that his hatred is perfect hatred that he calls upon God in the next breath to search him and know his heart, to try him and know his thoughts in order to see if there's any wickedness in him. That's Psalm 139. That we cannot easily aspire to this is an indication not of our spirituality. Oh, I would never do that. It's your lack of it. Not of our superior love for men, but of our inferior love for God. Indeed, our inability to hate the wicked with a hatred that is perfect and not personal. Perfect and not personal. David Pallison says it like this. Abusers think God won't require it. God won't seek out what they've done and bring it back on their heads. But when God acts, evildoers reap what they sow. What goes around comes around. The sufferer asks God to bring on logical consequences. The arm that broke another will be broken. It will happen. Throughout the Bible, the consequences of evil, uh, consequences of an evil course of action have certain appropriateness. The punishment fits the crime. For example, David was immoral. Deceitful and murderous, and consequence, immorality, deceit and violence stained his family. After Ammon seduced his half sister Tamar, her brother Absalom conspired to murder him. Absalom stole away the hearts of the people, used his father father's concubines, and attempted to kill his father. When Israel turned out turned to idol gods of the surrounding nations, she came under the political power of those nations. Sufferers want fairness and justice. Amen. But again. Remember, this is a cry of faith and not pride. These are not words of a vigilante. If I play vigilante, vengeance seeker, the vindictive one, I assume that my own actions must remedy evils or that evil against me personally must be remedied by God right now. Faith trusts God's wrath in different ways. I like that. Vengeance is God he will repay. But in those dark moments when there is pain in your heart, be like David, cry out to God. Cry out to God. Because this is a real world and there's real evil and we need a real God to step in and help real people in a real way. And then he ends with a quiet affirmation. You would think there would have been a Selah here. I didn't write the Bible. That would have been... The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations perish from his land. David rests in God's sovereign reign. We've talked about that in Psalms 7 and 9. Oh, Lord, and if these aren't two of the sweetest verses in the Bible, I don't know what is. You hear the desire of the afflicted. You strengthen their heart. Jesus was heard with his loud cries and his tears. Hebrews 5. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and to and the oppressed so that man who is of this earth may strike terror no more. No more. There will be a day when man will strike terror no more. David was looking back at what God had done in his own life, and he was looking forward to the one who would come. And as Hebrews tells us, if you want to turn with me there, I want to show you the one who went before you. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Jesus Christ. You get this whole chapter. Hebrews 11, by faith, by faith, by faith. And you hear of these victorious ones Abraham, Moses. And then in verse 36 of chapter 11, others suffered, mocking and flogging, even chains. They were stoned, they were sawn and toed, they were killed with the sword. They went about in the skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated. Friends, if you're here today, And this is anywhere near your personal experience. 1138 says, The world is not worthy of you. And all of these were commended by their faith. And then 12, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, all these people who have come before, all who went out in the name of Jesus, all who suffered in the name of God, Let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely because, and you'll see in the application, even victims can face their um, situations sinfully. That is not taught by any secular counselor anywhere. You mean to tell me I might not be handling this situation in the way that Jesus would? That's what I'm telling you. You're not going to get that. You're going to get, woe as you, you're great, you're awesome, this never should have happened, and it has nothing to do with you. That very well may be true, and you've got to handle it in a godly way. So lay aside the weight and sin which clings so close, and let us run with endurance the race set before us. How we look to Jesus, the pioneer, the founder, the one who went before us, the one who lived out Psalm 10 to the fullest, he was accused. He was spat on. He was beaten. And not one time did any bitterness come out of his mouth. Not one time. And instead he said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And this is what perplexes me. Because I, I, I really, when I get there, I mean, I can ask him now and he, he may tell me. But I want to see him face to face and I want to ask you this. Looking to you, Jesus, the founder and perfecter of my faith, our faith, the faith of those who believe in you, who for the joy set before you. What did that look like? See, I have to go by faith now, but one day I will not walk by faith, I will walk by What did that look like? Did I even get close to that when I was on earth? No, but I died for your sin anyway. Thank you. And we'd carry on for the next million years talking about other things. But I just want to ask him, what did that look like? Because we quote it all the time, but it would have been helpful, like in my Bible, to have a picture of what that looked like, but I don't. So God hears you. God is the one who is sovereign. Psalm seven and nine, God hears you. Psalm six, God strengthens, it starts in your heart. Notice, he will strengthen their heart. He he didn't say he will change their behavior. Your behavior is an overflow of your belief. It starts in your heart, the centerpiece of your desires. And God will, you and I have to trust, even though we don't see it right now, when we watch the news and we see it on a political level and a grotesque level, God, we have to trust. If somebody comes up to me today and they say, how can you, Bible guy, see all the atrocities in the world? If your God is so good, why is there evil? I trust One day, in his perfect timing, he is infant, I'm finite, he will do right. And so I began telling you, I'm preaching another man's sermon. I will end with his application, which is wonderful. And you don't have to take notes because it's in those articles out there. Psalm 10 walks... out ahead of us, teaching us to think clearly and to fervently seek help from where help really comes. You need to think, and he has THINK in all caps, about what has happened. What is the perpetrator of evil like? Who has mistreated you? What have they done? How do they think? What are they doing with God, not just with you? Get a clear head, uh, get a clear beat on evil, even though it is painful and frightening. Since evildoers are often successful and deceitful, they can be hard to identify. Often the first people they deceive are their victims. Clear thinking clears the head. See your danger for what it is. And you need to seek, in all caps, help. This help comes first and finally from the living God. He hears. He helps. He strengthens. He vindicates those who rely on Him. If you look anywhere else first, to your own powers of vengeance, self-protection, or escape, to the aid that other human beings offer, then you will set yourself up for a fall. You will get snared in bitterness and revenge, spurning God for your pride. You will flee in avoidance and addiction, spurning God for your false refugees and comforts. You will develop a perverted dependency on other people, spurning God for your trust in man, Sadly, our culture has awakened countless people to think about what evildoers, the abusers is the catchword, have done to them, but it has cast them upon their own resources as abuse victims. Failing to promote faith in God, bad counsel, must promote faith in something or someone else. That's good. But victims can properly understand their own sins and sufferings and God's grace they can learn the faith of Psalm 10 and find the wellspring of hope, mercy, and courage in dealing with evildoers. And now he gets really practical. As you seek the Lord first, then you will find that many secondary helps contribute to over the overall process. Notice he calls it a process. It's not just an event. I woke up one day, I was a victim. The next day, uh, magic bullet, I memorized the scripture, and it's done. No, that's not how Or as it often happens, I woke up day, victim of abuse, take pill, done. Don't deal with hard issues that go run deep. I'll just take a pill. No. He says, there's a place to call the police, file a class action lawsuit, press criminal charges, pursue church discipline, seek counseling, weep with a friend, visit a lawyer, get financial advice, look for a job, talk to a realer, and so forth. God is not a private refuge who shuts down recourse to other helps. The Lord is a refuge who leads us rightly, appropriate to many sub-redeemers who can play a part in our lives and to play a part for good in others' lives as well. As Zoe learns to think about evil and beseech God, she will also learn to participate in the community of God's people in a rich, immediate way. She'll have things to offer other sufferers down the road. A heart that has learned to think and pray, Psalm 10, for example, that she can comfort others with any affliction, Second Corinthians 1.4. And she can see what others meant for evil, God meant for good. Father, heavy stuff this morning. see that little girl's face on that video. And I thank you that I personally have never been through some of that, but it just makes me weep for those who have. And I can't assume there's not one person in here who hasn't been through something like that. you are good. You are real good. You're good to us. And I pray for anyone in here or anyone who knows someone that this Psalm 10 would come to life for them by the power of the Holy Spirit so that you get all the glory and we can only do this through the path that your son traveled first. He showed us how to perfectly suffer. And he trusted you the whole time. Might we do the same. It's in his name I pray. Amen.